All right, so we're continuing this morning in our series in the letter from Paul to the Thessalonian church, which we call First Thessalonians. We started last week, Skeet kicked it off, looked at the first three verses of chapter one. We're going to continue in that this morning. Most of what this letter is about is about Paul encouraging the Thessalonian Christians to be steadfast. And so that's why we've titled this series Steadfast. The word steadfast is one word that we don't particularly use every day in common language, and so it's helpful, I think, to think about what it means. It means unwavering. It means uh, unfaltering, unswerving. It means uh, staying solid as a rock, staying consistent, dedicated to, uh, to one thing. And so last week, Ski talked about verses uh, 1 through 3, chapter 1. We have a steadfast hope in Christ. And the reason we have that steadfast hope, the reason we're, we're solid as a rock around Christ, is we have two events. We have this historical event, which is a fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And we have this other fact, which takes place in the future where Jesus is coming back. And between those two fixed points, we can be steadfast in our hope. So this morning, we're going to continue in this theme of steadfast, and we're going to look how Paul encourages the Thessalonian church to be steadfast in affliction, or steadfast in persecution. So we'll go ahead and we'll jump into that in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about an incident that occurred at my house maybe two months ago. It was one of those odd things where you're asleep in the middle of the night. I don't remember exactly what time it was, let's say 2 a.m., my wife nudges me and says, wake up, wake up, there's some noise out there. And being the diligent husband that I am, I jump out of bed and ready to roar. And I go out, sneak out into the living room. I don't turn the lights on because I don't want to, people to see me. And so, because I hear something on the street in front of our house in the cul-de-sac there. And I sneak over to the front window and I peek out and, and it's a little bit dark, but there's a street light on and I can see a bunch of people out. There's at least two dozen people in the street. I'm going, wow, this is not good. What is going on out here? And then I start noticing that they're, they seem a little bit agitated. They're not just simply standing around. They're moving. It looks as though one or two of them are holding something that, at least from my vantage point, looks like guns, like shotguns. And one of them is actually holding a flaming torch. And so I'm like very concerned about that. So uh, I, uh, I get this tap on my, on my shoulder. My wife is standing behind me. She's got her cell phone out. She's dialing 911. I say, hold that thought. And I run back to the bedroom, and I grab my baseball bat, my Louisville slugger from, from high school days, and I come out with, with my baseball bat, and I'm ready to roar, right? So I, I walk over to the door, and my wife is standing by the door, and I, I peek out again, and I'm, and I'm listening, and I'm hearing these voices. I, I can't quite make out exactly what they're saying, but one of them is shouting something like, come on out and preach to us, you Jesus freak. And another one says, oh, you can't bring that kind of religion into my neighborhood, and so I'm going, wow, this is very strange. And, and one guy with a torch, he goes, come on out and fight us or we'll burn your house down. And I'm thinking, wow, this, they must have the wrong address. So <clears throat> I'm very concerned, but I know that the cops aren't going to get there in time. So I do the noble thing. And so I grab the doorknob and I start to open. And I got my baseball bat in my one hand and I'm opening it. And as I'm opening and get the door out, I'm about ready to take a step forward. I take one less peek and I see it coming across the yard. Pretty big guy who's got a shotgun. He's leveled at the door. So now I'm thinking maybe I should head back in, but I feel this hand in my back. And I realize that my wife's hand is in my back and she's pushing me out the door. <laughs> and that gets me off a little bit. And so I'm thinking, whoa, I think I want to be going this way, but now I'm going this way. And, I, and I've got the baseball bat in my hand and this guy's coming across the lawn. And I raise my baseball bat up only to discover that my baseball bat suddenly has changed into a G.I. Joe action figure. And the guy that's running across the lawn with a shotgun is actually an armadillo. And then I realize I'm actually in bed, and it's my wife pushing me in the back saying, John, you're having a dream, wake up. 
And she was right. I was having a nightmare. And so I do what all great Americans do. I rolled over and went back to sleep. So that story, I'm sure you'll figure out what application it has in this morning's sermon. It's possible that you won't. So come up to me afterwards and ask me if it doesn't quite, if a penny doesn't drop for you, I can explain it. Uh, but hopefully that will all become clear. So open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And, and while you're doing that, or instead of while you're doing that, I'm going to pray this morning. So let me just pray. Lord God, we just want to thank you again for being a good God. I want to thank you for the hours of study I had in preparation for this sermon. Lord, it's such a pleasure, although convicting and uncomfortable many times, to read your word and to study it and to figure out what it is that you have to say to me first and foremost and then to others. And so I pray this morning, as I always do when I preach, that my voice wouldn't be simply the foolishness of one man speaking but that your holy spirit would speak through me as you have spoken through me all week as i've prayed for you to do so and so i just pray that your words would have effect not only on me first but also on those who hear and that uh, all that would be done to your glory and to your honor we pray all this in the powerful name of your son jesus okay so uh we want to just introduce by way of background review if i could get this map up on the slide we have a multimedia presentation for you this morning uh, this is a map of the second missionary journey that Paul and Silas took. The question that this answers is, how did we wind up with a church in, in, in Thessalonica in the first place? The, the, the word Thessalonians is the word we use for people who live in Thessalonica. And so Paul and Silas uh, started out over here in Antioch, and they traveled across what is modern-day Turkey, spreading the gospel as they went. They wound up at Troas, they took a boat across, went to Philippi, and then they wound up in Thessalonica. Uh, this is a small, not a small, it's a major uh, city uh, on the Aegean Sea. It's a port city. It's on the direct route of some major travel. And the city's still there today. It's, in fact, somebody in here, I suspect, has been there. Uh, it's still there. It's in modern-day Greece. It's quite a, quite a picturesque spot. And so you can see from the map there that there's a region called uh, Achaia down to the south uh, of, of Thessalonica and then Macedonia up to the north. Uh, Paul will refer to these two regions. I just wanted to see, uh, you see, to see the geography. It covers quite a large area. Now, uh, so Paul was sharing the gospel as he went. And, of course, when he got to Thess- Thessalonica, he did the same thing. And he told the people about Jesus, and many of the, the people in Thessalonica believed. And those believers then banded together and formed a church, which we call the Church of, of Thessalonica, or in, in to which Paul then wrote, First and Second Thessalonians, two letters that he sent to encourage them, and so that's that's how we got the church there. And this is the letter. So, if you've got your Bibles open to First Thessalonians, we're going to cover uh, verses four through ten in chapter one, and we'll pick it up in verse four uh, now. So you can either follow on the screen or follow along in your Bibles. This is what Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. He says, "For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power." and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And so Paul and Silas shared the gospel message with the Thessalonians. And we mostly know what the gospel message is, but let's remind ourselves is that we are sinful creatures, we are are radically depraved, and therefore we're sinners. And when we sin, it means that we can't be with God. God is is a holy God and can't have anything to do with sin. So when we sin, it means we can't be with God. We cannot go to heaven. When we die, we're all going to hell. That's the bad news. The good news is that God made a way through his son, Jesus. He sent Jesus down to earth specifically to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And when we trust in Jesus, 
All of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for. The slate is wiped clean, and we're able to go to heaven when we die, but only if we trust and believe in Jesus. And so that's the message that Paul preached to the Thessalonian church. That's the same message we preach in this church day upon day. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. So how did the Thessalonians respond? Well, the Thessalonians, many of them, not all of them, of course, but many of them believed in Jesus. But they did more than that. They believed in Jesus, and then they took some actions. They changed the way they lived. And so we pick it up in verse 6 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and Paul writes this. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so we see that the Thessalonians not only believed, but they responded in a very positive and active way. Verse 9 says that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The Thessalonian society of those days was very much a pagan Greek religion. And that means that what they did is they, they, they worshipped many false idols. Many. As many as they could find, they would worship them. And so many of the Thessalonian believers who trusted in Jesus came from that kind of background. They came from a, a Greek pagan uh, Gentile religion background, and against the current of their society, they believed in, in Jesus, and they began to worship, instead of worshiping many uh, dead, false idols, they worshiped one true living God. And so it was, it was about face, it was a 180 degree turn for many of these. Well, not only did they believe in Jesus and turn from idols, but they also imitated Paul. They imitated him. What was Paul doing that they imitated? Well, Paul was a missionary, and so he's telling other people about Jesus. And so when the Thessalonians imitated Paul, it means that they were very active, they were very vocal. They went out in their community and their friends and neighbors and co-workers, and they shared the gospel of Jesus. In this part here in verse 6 where it says, The word of the Lord sounded forth from you. This means that the gospel resounded or, or rang out or reverberated. And I'm not a cell phone expert, but I believe those towers, is that, those cell phone towers that you see, they, they take a signal from one tower and they receive it and they boost it, they amplify it, and then they send it along the way. And that's what the Thessalonian believers did. They heard the message that Paul had said, the gospel message. They got it, they took it, and then they spread it loud and clear to other people around them. In fact, they did this so much that uh, Paul wrote, he said, your faith has gone everywhere so that we need not say anything. The Thessalonian believers were so active in spreading the gospel, Paul is saying, we didn't need to do that. You guys did it for us. You beat us to the punch. And so the word of God, the gospel, was spreading from the Thessalonian church all around in this region. And, and in fact, it was, it was a big region. And he says that they were, became famous all across Macedonia and Achaia, and they were serving as great examples to the other believers in the region. And it's a pretty big region. I think if this church, that church had been here in Tomball, Paul might have written something like this. Just to give you a sense of the geography, Paul would have written to that church here in Tomball. He would have said, The word of the Lord sounded forth from you all the way to Dallas, to Corpus Christi, and to Lake Charles. And back in those days when they didn't have a lot of technology, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have, didn't have uh, TV media, they, that all had to spread by word of mouth. 
And for that word to spread that far so quickly, they must have been doing a really, really, really good job of talking about Jesus. And so Paul commends them for that. It was all good. But I want you to look back at verse 6 with me for just a second. Because stuck in there, we find out that the Thessalonians were in much affliction. So verse 6 says this. uh, It says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Now, what is affliction and how are the Thessalonians afflicted? Well, Webster's definition of affliction is quite helpful. Webster says that affliction means is, is being in distress, distress so severely as to cause persistent suffering and anguish. So it has this idea of distress and suffering and anguish. And so it's quite painful. But what was it? What caused the distress, suffering, and anguish? Was it because the Thessalonians were poor and they didn't have enough money to buy food and shelter and clothing? No, that wasn't it. Is it because they were sick, that there was some plague that was running around in the region and many of the Thessalonian believers were ill and near to death? No, that's not it either. Was it because there had been like an earthquake or some natural disaster that they were recovering from? And that's not the case either. The fact is that the affliction they were suffering is actually what we call religious persecution. We know this from the other versions of the Bible. The other translations will will translate this word affliction as tribulation, severe suffering, or persecution. And so what was the religious persecution? What exactly was happening to them? Well, we can go back. We've got a pretty good record of what was happening back in those days when Paul and Silas were traveling through Thessalonia. uh, You know what I mean? And so... We can go back and we can see. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, if you turn to Acts chapter 17, we have a good account. And I think we can see exactly what the uh, persecution was that took place in, in Thessalonica. So Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 4. So, so Paul and Silas shared the gospel message with the people in Thessalonica. And, and here's what happened. It says, And some of them were persuaded, that is, persuaded to believe the gospel and, and trust in Jesus. And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devoted Greeks, devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So, good so far. But, but, the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, okay, there's a phrase we don't see very often. Wicked men of the rabble can be translated as, uh, as crooks in the marketplace. Untrustworthy men who are willing to lie if you paid them out of the marketplace. So let's start that again. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some, some wicked men out of the marketplace, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Now, Jason is just a Christian who's got a house. Paul and Silas needed some place to stay as they were passing through, and they're staying at Jason's house. So anyway, they, they, they set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Who's them? It's Paul and Silas. They think Paul and Silas are there, but they just didn't happen to be at, at Jason's house at the moment. And when they could not find them, the Paul and Silas that is, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received him, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers uh, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So the Jews in Thessalonica were jealous. They were jealous because when Paul and Silas came in, they were converting some of their Jewish members in their synagogue to, to, to worship this Jesus. And so they were jealous of that. And they were jealous enough that they got angry, formed a mob, and were threatening. 
And so they had to, Paul and Silas had to flee by night and went to Berea, the next city along the coast. Except the Jewish uh, 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 guys were so, uh, so adamant about that, they, they actually chased after Paul and Silas and went to the Berea and did the same thing. And you can read about that this afternoon in your Bible, continuing on in Acts chapter 17 if you want to. And they chased him to Berea, and then Paul had to flee and went down to Athens just to get away from these guys. They were quite persistent. And so this is the persecution that the Christians in, in Thessalonica were suffering from. The Jews were jealous, and they were attacking them. Uh, they were being uh, violent, actually. It was dangerous and scary persecution. It wasn't something simple. But it wasn't only the Jews that did. It was also Greeks. And so we see that if we turn forward to chapter in 1 Thessalonians to chapter 2, in verse 14, Paul's still writing to the Thessalonians. He reminds him, he says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now, he's referring to churches in Judea, which is on the east end of the Mediterranean region, what we call the, the Middle East around Jerusalem. Those churches there were suffering persecution too. And so he's saying, you, you became imitators of those churches. And then he says, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Your own countrymen refers to the Greeks, those, their, their very brothers, their, their, their nation. And so the, the Jews were, were persecuting them because they were stealing people out of the synagogue and, and, and they were worshiping Jesus and they were jealous of that. And the Greeks, they were persecuting the Thessalonians also. Why? Well, probably because they were proclaiming not many false dead idols, but one true living God. And that obviously created enough tension among them that they were also persecuting the Thessalonians. So these persecutions were dangerous. There were angry mobs of people uh, running around. Uh, they probably had torches and other things, and all the Christians in, in uh, Thessalonica were threatened with violence. It was not a pretty sight. And so now, with that a little bit of background, I, I think it's useful to go back then and look at what Paul's admonition is to these guys. He commends them. Uh, in, in, in the middle of this, this violent persecution. So let's just read 6 through 8 again in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And so if Paul were a, a sort of a modern-day uh, speaker, he, instead of writing a letter, he, he might stand up in front of the Thessalonian church. He might say, well done, Thessalonians. Well done. You guys have been persecuted by the Jews. You've been persecuted by the Greeks. You not only responded favorably to the gospel message, but now you guys have set an example for all the churches in the region. You've gone out. you told other people about Jesus. You haven't backed down. You haven't been scared. Good job. Way to go. You spread the gospel all over Greece. In fact, you're putting me, Paul, out of a job. Because I don't need to go and tell them because they already know the gospel message. Way to go. Well done, Thessalonians. And so that's what Paul wants to communicate in this section of Scripture to the Thessalonian church. Now, what is Paul's message for us today? What does Paul want us to take from this? Well, I think it's pretty clear. He wants us to be steadfast in the middle of persecution. He wants us to be firm, unswerving, unwavering, solid as a rock in our faith in the middle of being persecuted for our faith. So, 
let's talk about persecution for a few minutes. What, what is it like 2,000 years later? In other words, today, are Christians still persecuted for loving Jesus? The answer is yes. Resoundingly, yes. Every week we read in the newspapers and we see on the TV Christians being killed, Christians being arrested, Christians being deported, Christians being beheaded because they love Jesus. Just last week on Easter Sunday, there were thousands of of Christians gathered in a city park in Lahore, Pakistan, and a suicide bomber came in knowing that they would be there. They They had gathered in the morning in this park to celebrate the risen Jesus, and the bomber came in, strapped a head-to-foot in, in explosives, hit the button, blew himself up, and killed 74 people, mostly women and children, and injured another 360 people. And so for Christians in Pakistan, persecution is a, is a deadly thing. But not just in Pakistan. There are organizations that track religious persecution around the world, and in addition to Pakistan, the, the top the top 10 religious persecution countries includes North Korea, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, Iran, Sudan, Libya, Yemen, Nigeria, and a bunch more. But not the United States. The United States is not on that list. In these countries, persecution of Christians is real, it's violent, and it's deadly. But what about a tomball? How many of us have been arrested by Tomball police because of our faith in Jesus? No. Have any of us been deported as a result? Has any of us been physically threatened for following Jesus and Tomball? I doubt it. The fact is that we live in America, which is a country of religious freedom, and that's a good thing. My dream where my neighbors formed this mob and came over to my house in the middle of the night to burn it down, that was a a nightmare. It didn't happen. So when we come to biblical exhortation like this, uh, stand firm and be steadfast among persecution, what, what do we do? What do we do with this section of Scripture? Well, if you're at all like me, and I know you're not, it's okay. But if you're all like me, or even close to being anything like me, you probably do this. You probably ignore it. Now, I know that sounds like, well, what do you mean I ignore it? I, I think we, we mostly ignore it. I think we acknowledge that persecution takes place in other countries, and we say, well, we need to pray for those people. But when it comes to us, in other words, here's a section of Scripture that applies to those people in those other countries, but it doesn't hit me. It doesn't hit my heart. I think we mostly ignore it, kind of move on. Let's go to chapter 2 in First Thessalonians and see if there's something that I can apply daily in my life. Well, I don't think we stand on very solid ground by ignoring Scripture. I don't think that's an option for us as Christians. And so what I want to do this morning is just take a little bit more close look at persecution and find out what else the Bible says about persecution because maybe we're missing something. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 15, or you can follow it on the screen. Jesus warned his disciples that they would indeed be persecuted. So a disciple is a follower of Jesus. And so if you love Jesus, you trusted in Jesus, you believe in his resurrection, you are a follower, you are a disciple of Jesus. And John writes in, in chapter uh, 
Jesus says in John chapter 15, he's, he's speaking to his disciples in verse 19 and 20. He says, if you, that is your, his disciples, if you were, in the wor- were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we as followers of Jesus are to be in the world, but not of the world. And briefly, what that means is, is we're here here on earth and we should be mingling and, and rubbing shoulders with everybody in our society. And so we're not, we're not sort of to, to separate ourselves and go hide in a corner somewhere. We're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. In other words, we're not to blend in. We're not to be exactly like the world. We're intended to be different. We're intended to stand out. We're intended to have different values and different actions and believe different things than the people around us. We're not supposed to be like them. And if we do so, that is, if we're different, if we stand out, Jesus said, you'll be persecuted. You'll be persecuted for loving Jesus. Paul writes in, uh, to a letter, 2 Timothy to Timothy, he, he writes this, it's very clear, there's no sort of wiggling out of this one. 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not just Christians in third world countries. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Even Christians in Tombaugh. And so, so when we come to persecution in Tombaugh, I think we have to ask, answer a first question first. We have to ask the question, are we in the world but not of the world? Are we truly desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Am I distinctly different from the people around me? So that... When they see me, they'll say, there's something different about that guy. Do we tell the people that we're Christians? So they will know why it is that we act differently. Do we speak up for Jesus in public? When there's a discussion in the office place or, or uh, in, in, in Starbucks, and we, we know we need to speak up about Jesus, do we do so? Or do we just kind of hold back and say, well, I'll keep my head down? Do our co-workers and our neighbors and our, our friends and our classmates and people around us, do, do they know that we're Christians? Well, if you're not being persecuted for loving Jesus, it may be because you're hiding. It may be because you're not allowing people to know that you're a Christian. And so the first priority is for us to speak up, stand up, stand out, be different that people will know that we love Jesus. And if we do, what will be the results? Well, it's very clear from Scripture that we will be persecuted. But what does that persecution look like? What does that persecution look like for for Tomball Bible Church, us, sitting in Tomball in 2016? Well, I think we need to remember that persecution doesn't only mean being arrested or deported It doesn't only mean being blown up by a suicide bomber or being beheaded. It doesn't only mean that. Around the world, dozens of Christians are being killed daily. 
And for them, persecution means death. And I would never minimize that. But let's face it. Here in Tomball, very few of us are going to die as a result of our faith in Jesus. Here in Tomball, with a church on every corner in, uh, of our town, we're not going to die as a result of our faith. Now, the Bible says that's going to change in the future. But now, probably not. So, does that mean that Christians in Tomball are not persecuted? No, I don't think so. Because I think persecution comes in many forms. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, in verse 11, this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount speaking to, to a mass of people. And he makes it very clear that there's a different kind of persecution also. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This word revile is another word we don't use very often, but it means to insult or to scorn or to mock or to ridicule or to make fun of. That's persecution. The Apostle Paul, we know he suffered a lot of physical persecution, but he was also insulted. I'm pretty sure the Apostle Paul got insulted a lot. And he considered that to be persecution. In his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, in verse 10, Paul writes this. He says, For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The fact is that Peter, uh, Paul considered insults to be just another form of persecution. And it might not have sent him to the hospital, but it hurt. Peter writes the same thing. In 1 Peter 4.14, he says, he says that we are blessed if we endure insults as being a Christian. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So I think if we take a broader look, I think we'll realize that, that there, there are different, different forms of, or different flavors of persecution. And for, for people in Tomball in 2016, I, I think the most common forms are, are two things. One, I think it's verbal abuse. And secondly, I think it's relational abuse. Verbal abuse comes about as when you, you express the fact that you're a Christian, you may stand up for Jesus in public. What's going to happen to you? Well, people are going to insult you. People are going to scorn you. They're going to make disparaging remarks. They might make jokes about you. They might gossip about you behind your back. They might slander you. They might call you names. And that's abusive. And that's persecution. Relational abuse occurs that when you stand up for Jesus, that, that sometimes people aren't going to react to you in the same way that they might react to other people. And so... Sometimes they'll avoid you. Sometimes they'll fail you to call you back when you leave them a phone message. Sometimes they'll turn the other way when they see you in the driveway and get their mail later at night when you're not around. Or they might, they might uh, decline an invitation to lunch or dinner. Oh, we're busy again that week and so sorry. Six months later, you're still inviting them over for dinner and they don't want to come. They're making up excuses not to come. And they fail you to invite you to a party that they have at their house and then and then they make excuses about why their children can't come over and play at your house. And that's persecution too. Verbal abuse and relational abuse might not be bloody. It might not break your bones. It might not send you to the hospital, but it hurts. And it's persecution nonetheless. I want you to know that Jesus and Paul want us to not feel embarrassed or ashamed because we get verbal abuse and relational abuse, but we don't get the executioner's axe on our, on our necks. 
It's all persecution. So, among persecution, what's our temptation? In other words, if we get persecuted verbally or relationally, what are we tempted to do? Well, the temptation we have as modern-day Christians is exactly the same temptation that the Thessalonian Christians had in Paul's day, faced with persecution. It's exactly the same temptation that a Christian in Afghanistan kneeling on the beach with an executioner standing behind him with a hood over his head holding a long saber has. It's the same temptation that Peter had in the courtyard the night that Jesus got arrested. And the temptation is to do this, is to keep your head down, is to step back, is to be silent, is to don't let anybody know you're a Christian because you're going to get persecuted temptation. And in the extreme, in the extreme, the temptation is for us to deny that we even know Jesus, to disown him. And and that's the reason that Paul commended the Thessalonian believers for what they did, because in the middle of of intense persecution, they didn't do that. They were steadfast. They spoke up. They stuck out. They were different. They told other people about Jesus, and they weren't afraid. They were steadfast. And Paul's message is the same for us. Be steadfast in the midst of our persecution. Be firm and resolute and unswerving and unwavering and committed. Have some integrity. And I think it's okay for us to say that enduring verbal and relational abuse is not easy. It's okay for us to say that. You've got a brother who has a daughter, so this is your niece. And your niece has got a boyfriend and they're living together. And they call you up on the phone and they say, hey, we're coming through Houston on a little trip. you mind if we stay with you a couple nights? Oh, no, we'd love to have you. Come on. And they get there and you put your niece in the back bedroom and you blow up that big air bed and you put it in the living room and ask your boyfriend to sleep on that. Do you do that to be rude? No, you don't do that to be rude. You do that because you don't want the two of them sleeping in your house together in a bed because they're not married because it's going to have an influence on your children. And so... It's a tough position to take, and you try to be as polite as you can about it, but then her boyfriend gets a little bit upset and says some nasty things to you. Oh, Jesus, put your morals on top of me. And that hurts. And it hurts again the next day when your brother calls you up because he heard about it because his daughter called him and said, what's up with that? And he says, oh, he calls you some some kind of a Nazi or some kind of religious fanatic, and it hurts again because now you've interrupted, you've upset the relationship you've got with your brother. Or maybe you're a businessman and you travel a fair bit and you go to business meetings like I did, do. And you fly to, I don't know, New York or Los Angeles or Bangkok or anywhere in the world and you have a business meeting in the day and then you say, well, let's go out to dinner together. And so you've got eight or ten guys and you all go out to dinner and you have a very nice, very nice dinner and a very nice five-star restaurant and the dinner's over and you, you sort of pile out to the curb and you're all going to catch taxis to go somewhere and uh, seven out of the ten guys say, hey, let's go over to the gentlemen's club I don't have any idea where they got that term and now you're faced with a decision you're going to get in a taxi and go with those guys you're going to do something else and so you do the right thing as I often did and I'd get in a taxi and said, no I've got to head back to the hotel and they go out and they have to do their thing and they come back the next morning for more meetings and you're coming into the meeting room and you're settling down and you're each having a cup of coffee and 
you sit down and, and, and uh, you start the meeting and the first thing that comes out of one of the guys is, hey, how come you didn't go with us last night? And you're tempted to say, I was just really tired. I had to get back and go to bed. But what you do say is, well, to be honest, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm a born-again Christian. Biblical principles would say, I have eyes for my wife only. And so I hope you guys had a good time, but for me, it would have been bad. And then you look around the room and you see guys doing this kind of thing, like, oh, boy. One guy's rolling his eyes, another guy's stifling a laugh. And yeah, you don't go home in crutches because the guys broke your legs or anything, but it hurts. And you know that you damaged, in some way, the relationship you've got with those guys is suddenly changing and now on the outside. And then neighbors move in across the street, and a couple of days later, you see them out in the drive, and you grab your wife and you go, hey, let's go introduce ourselves to them. And you walk across the street and you say, hey, I'm John and Karen. And, and, and uh, the wife looks at the husband and he goes, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're that religious couple. That, uh, uh, is it Bob and Kathy living next door? Yeah, Bob and Kathy were telling us about. Religious couple. The heck is that? And then you remember that you shared the gospel with, with, with Bob and Kathy a couple of months ago and they didn't particularly react well to it. Now you know they're gossiping about you. The first thing that they can say about, when, about you when a new neighbor moves in across the street is that religious couple. And we snicker about that, don't we? think it's funny, but doesn't it hurt? Don't you feel like an outcast when that happens? But it's persecution. And you don't bleed and you don't get any broken bones and you don't go to the hospital, but it hurts anyway. And the worst thing about it is next time you're tempted to do this, aren't you? The next time this happens and your niece calls you up, you're tempted to let her sleep with her boyfriend in your bedroom because you don't want that. You don't want that persecution. And the next time you go on a business meeting in Hong Kong and these guys say, let's go to the gentleman's club, you think, God. Maybe I should just go with him and close my eyes. And maybe you have second thoughts about talking to your neighbors about Jesus because you know they're going to gossip about you. And that's the temptation, and it's hard, and it's not simple. And it's easy for us to hide that. But it's persecution nonetheless. Now, I've got three quick bits of advice. Things that, uh, th- th- these are not my bits of advice. I've, I've gotten them from someone else, and it was quite helpful to me. It's three things to remember. Three things. One, God is in control. Two, don't retaliate. And three, rejoice. All right, one at a time. God is in control. Your persecution, what those other people say, is foreordained by God. God is a sovereign God over all the earth. And if it happened... He ordained it. He either made it happen or he allowed it to happen and it wasn't some random chance or accident that that occurred. Lamentations 3, verse 37 says it very clearly. He says, he writes, Who is there who speaks? Who is there who speaks unless the Lord has commanded it? The very words that come out of someone else's mouth, the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High God that both good and bad come? God's in control. Secondly, don't retaliate. When someone insults you, do not insult them back. Paul is very clear on that in Romans twelve fourteen. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The third point is rejoice. Whoa. Rejoice. 
Rejoice and be glad because God will bless you and reward you greatly. And I just want to close with this verse from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. We read verse 11 before. We're going to read both 11 and 12 now. Follow it on the screen. Golly. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Wow. Be steadfast in persecution. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you so much for the Thessalonian church. We thank you that despite the persecution that they endured, they, their faith remained steadfast and sure and firm and unmovable, unswerving, solid as a rock. Lord God, we thank you that they set an example, not only to other believers in Achaia and Macedonia, but they set an example for us too as believers here in Tomball 2,000 years later. Lord, help us. Help us to be in the world, not of the world. Help us to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. Help us to be distinctly different so that others will know that we love Jesus. And when the persecution comes in the form of verbal abuse or emotional abuse or however it comes, let our faith be steadfast, unswerving, solid as a rock. We'll give you the honor and the glory. Pray all this in the powerful name. Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.